Praise the Lord. I am so excited to be back with you on tonight. And what a good-looking congregation we have for a Sunday evening. I'm glad you took time out of your schedule to be here tonight. I believe that any time we gather together in His name, the Scripture says He's in the midst of us. And so I'm just so glad that the Lord is among us. Let me just say a few things before we get into the Word of the Lord. Thank you for your generous gifts to me and to my family. I'm indebted to you. I, I thank you for your generosity towards us. It allows me to continue to fulfill the call of God on my life. If it were not for the gifts of wonderful folks just like you, I would be forced financially, of course, to get a job close to where I live. I'm certainly not above that. I have done that before but it would restrain the work that I do for the Lord. So the fact that I don't have to have a public job to stay near in the locality where I live, I'm free to go wherever the door opens, as often as the doors open. And I would not be able to do that without you. So I am indebted to you, and I just want to say from my heart, thank you so very, very much. Although this is the first time that I have preached in Kentucky, I hope it is not the last time. Driving by car, it's about a nine to a nine and a half hour drive from the Richmond, Virginia area. But if I lived just a little bit closer, I would make this my home church. <laughs> Speaking in different churches and different, to different congregations each and every week, there, there is some adapting that is required depending upon you know, the circumstance or situation. The Word of God remains the same, but sometimes the presentation is a little different or that, of that nature. But when I am with you, I can just be myself because I just feel like you have made me feel absolutely like I am at home. And I just want to thank you so very, very much. As a matter of fact, I might have to call my wife and tell her if she wants to see me, she'd better come to Kentucky. <laughs> oh. Pastor Rob, thank you so much for this invitation and for introducing me to these wonderful people. I've been doing this long enough to know that in some situations, there are great churches that don't really have great pastors. And then there are some great pastors that don't really have great churches. But it is a rare thing when you have a great pastor and a great church in the same location. Now, my friends, that is exactly what you have right here. This is a great church and a great pastor. And his wife, Donna, are just wonderful, wonderful people. That's probably a better way to phrase this, but I'm a little jealous. I wish I was a little taller. wish I had that preacher hair on my head like you've got it. I wish I could play the bass like that. I wish I could sing like you do, but God has blessed you in so many ways. And I'm just thankful to have the opportunity to spend the day with you. And thank you for receiving the word of the Lord as I was preaching this morning. You're an easy congregation to preach to. I can tell that you love the word, that you love God, that you love one another. And it is just a joy uh, to minister the word of the Lord unto you. I have a message on my heart for us tonight. Please stand with me at this time for the reading of God's Word. 
This morning we spoke about Elijah. Tonight we're going to speak about Elisha. In 2 Kings chapter 13, we're going to read of an episode in his life where he was on his deathbed, but there was something that happened in a conversation between he and the king that I think needs our discovery. Let's take a look at it together. 2 Kings chapter 13, beginning at verse 14. Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the east window. And he opened it. And then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. Then he said, Take the arrows. And so he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. Finally, verse 19, the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Can you say amen to the reading of God? Amen. The title that I wish to use for this evening is this phrase, the need for complete victory. You may be seated. God bless you. Father, as always, I humble myself before you being fully aware and totally cognizant that I cannot do this without you. I thank you for your anointing. I thank you for your grace. And I ask that by your spirit, you would so enable me to explain the scriptures and expound upon them in such a way that it makes sense to us, that we understand truth. And that it has a significant impact in our lives. I pray specifically that no one leaves here tonight with partial victories. But that we live with a complete victory that you intend for us to have. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And let the church say amen. And amen. Although I have just read the text to you a moments ago, I would like as an introduction to walk through this text just to make sure that we are all on the same page and understand exactly what's happening in this story. Elisha by this time was an old man and he had some kind of ailment, or sickness or disease of which he never did recover. He actually died with this ailment. And to show the great affinity and respect that the king had for Elisha the prophet, Something spectacular happens. The king leaves the palace and goes to the residence of the prophet and pays him a visit. Now that's rather remarkable because almost always the reverse is what would happen. Many times the prophets would visit the king. But here we have a king 
who was visiting at the home of the prophet. This shows a great deal of respect for this prophet. And whenever the king comes into the home of the prophet Elisha, the scripture says to us that he wept over his face. So I just want you to imagine the prophet Elisha lying there in his bed, weak, feeble, old, and about to die. And this king standing at bedside, literally crying and weeping over him. And then he says a statement that I think needs a little bit of explanation. The king says, oh my father, my father. Now you and I both know that Elisha was not the paternal father of the king. Why is he calling him father, father? What he seems to be saying here is, with implication, you are like a father to me. If you were to die now, it would be as though my very own father was dying. Don't die on me now. That seems to be what he's saying here. Not only does he say, my father, my father, but again, an interesting phrase, I think, that needs an explanation. While he's weeping over the prophet, he says, the horses of Israel and the chariots thereof. Hey, what's that all about? The horses and the chariots of Israel represented their best military might. So what he's saying is, if I lose you, it would be like losing my dad. It would be like, it would be like losing my entire military. That's how valuable you are to me. Don't die on me now. The implication is, if you die on us now, how are we going to have victories over our enemies in the future? We need you, prophet of God. We need you as God's representative to this nation. Don't die on us now. How are we going to have victories tomorrow if you die on us today? So Elijah answers that question with an object lesson. I wish I had a bow and arrow with me tonight. I do not have that, but uh, it, would, it would really add to the service. But Elisha whispers to the king, go get a bow and arrow. Well, without question the king had traveled with an entourage of soldiers he probably had to step simply outdoors and retrieve a bow and arrow and there is a series of steps that they go through using this bow and arrow that explain to us essential steps in living with complete victory and we're going to talk about each of them but I just want to hit the highlights right now Elisha says hold the bow and the king holds the bow this is symbolism. Elisha puts his hands on the king's hand. We're going to talk about what that means there. Then he said, open the east window and shoot an arrow. It's symbolism. We're going to talk about what that means as well. Then he tells the king, take the remaining arrows that you have here and strike them on the ground. We're also going to talk about what that means in a few moments. But the point that I want to bear right now in the introduction of this sermon is that when the king took the remaining arrows and struck them on the ground, he struck them on the ground only three times. And Elisha the prophet got angry with him and said, you should have smitten as many as six times. Because however many times he struck the ground with those arrows represented how many victories he was going to win over his enemies. Since he only struck three times, you read the rest of the chapter, they had three victories over the Syrians. And he could have had six victories, and yet he only had three victories. In other words, they were living with about half of the victory that they could have had. 
I suggest to you that God does not want you living with half of your victory. Jesus died on the cross for total victory in your life. God doesn't want you to have about half of the joy in your life. He wants you to have joy unspeakable and full of glory. The Lord doesn't intend that you have about half of the peace of mind. No, He wants you to have the peace that surpasses all understanding. And let me go further than that. Jesus didn't take stripes on His back so you could have half of your healing. I believe He wants you to have a complete healing in your body. So rather than have victory in some areas of our life while at the same time struggling with defeats in other areas of our life, we want to learn tonight through the object lesson of the bow and arrow from Elisha on essential elements in living with complete victory in every area of life. I want to hear somebody say, I want the rest of my victory. I want the rest of my victory victory. So let's walk through it together. Let's go to point number one and let me suggest to you that when he put his hands on the king's hands, the message here is that we need to rely on the hand of God. Let me read the scripture to you. 2 Kings chapter 13 at verse 16. Then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it and Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. When I first read that, I had the image in my mind that the king simply was holding a bow in his hand, perhaps horizontal or parallel to, to the floor, and maybe he just stood by the bedside holding the, holding the bow like this, and Elisha reached over and put his hands on the king's hands. I no longer believe that that is what happened. And it's because of a certain Hebrew word that is used in this command from Elisha. When he says, put, your hands on the bow. It's, that's an interesting word that is used there, put. In other places in the scripture, it is translated ride. It's the same word that is used for someone who would ride a horse. So he's actually saying, ride your hand on the bow. What does it mean to ride your hand on the bow? It means to hold it in such a way as you are about to use it. Ride your hand along the string. Uh, ride your hand along the bow, the frame of the bow, so that you are holding it as though you are about to use it. Now, what is happening here is there is a pretense of a military action. Their military in that day would use bow and arrow. So what Elisha was saying is pretend like you're going to shoot an arrow. At this point of the story, no arrow is involved. He simply picks up a bow. He's got his left hand on this portion of the bow. He's got his right hand on this part of the bow. And he's extending it back. He's pretending it's a military action. And he's holding the bow like this. Now notice carefully what is, how it's worded here. Elisha put his hands, plural, on the king's hands, plural. So Elisha, even though he's weak and feeble and lying in the bed and about to die, he has to strengthen up to raise up a little bit in the bed and put his right hand on the left hand of the king and his left hand on the right hand of the king as though he's saying, pull it back a little further. You're not pulling back far enough. In other words, you will never win victories in your own strength. You must rely upon the strength of God. You must rely upon the hand of God. How many know it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord? 
with all of our intellect, all of our wisdom, all of our experience, all of our charisma, we will never have victory in every area of life until we learn how to depend upon the Holy Spirit and trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and commit all things into His hands. Somebody shout amen. Now, let me illustrate this. When my oldest son, who's now 28 years old, wow, 28. How can he be 28 when I look like I'm 38? <laughs> when Travis was about 9 or 10 years old, I bought him a bow and arrow. Now, not the kind of bow and arrow that you go hunting with. Just the kind of bow and arrow that you play around with in the backyard at the house. And I bought this bow and arrow, and it had a little target that came with it. We hung it over on the tree, and I gave him the bow and arrow. He was insistent on trying this himself without help from his father. So he was clumsy at the beginning. He didn't know how to notch the arrow on the string. And, of course, when he pulled back that first time and, and released the arrow, it didn't even go near the target. It just fell at the bottom of the roots of the tree, and he was a little disappointed. And I said, Travis, let me help you this time. And so when he was 9 or 10 years old, he was about this tall, and I hovered in right behind him. And I put my left hand right over the top of his left hand, holding the bow. And I cupped my right hand over the top of his right hand as we were holding the arrow on the string. Now, he, when he was pulling back, he wasn't pulling back far enough. So I helped him pull it back a little further. He was aiming too far to the left. I pushed it back to the right. I said, on the count of three, we will release the arrow together. One, two, Three, we hit the target. Let me tell you what he did. He laid that bow down in the grass and ran to the back door of the house and says, Mom, come look what I did. <laughs> I thought, yeah, you would have never hit that target had it not been for the hand of your father that was upon you. Now, the scripture teaches us that we will always miss the mark. We're always falling short of the glory of God. But when we learn how to rely upon the anointing of the Holy Spirit, how many know we need the Holy Spirit? Shout amen. Oh, how we need the Holy Spirit. If we're going to have victories in every area of our life, it's not going to become because of who we are in ourselves. It's going to be because we have learned the secret of relying upon the hand of God. I thought I would share with you a time in my life when I really learned how to lean upon the help of the Holy Spirit. It was early in my ministry, I was about 17 years old, and it was my first encounter with a demon-possessed person. And I want to tell you about that. We were at the camp meeting services in Roanoke, Virginia. That's where our state offices are in Virginia. And in case you have not been there, it is a tabernacle. It's got a roof, and it's got a back wall and it's got a front wall but there are no side walls you can see all the way out the sides to the parking lot which is on either side of the tabernacle I was about 17 years old I had accepted the call of God on my life but I wasn't getting very many schedules and opportunities to preach I was really struggling with all of that I won't go into that part of my life that early struggle of my ministry but when the altar service was over I had prayed at length in the altar about that so that when I got up out of the altar the thousand people that had been there prior were almost all back, you know, either in their homes or motels or restaurants, wherever they were. There were only a handful of us left under the tabernacle. I'd left my Bible and car keys and a few personal belongings back at my seat. So when I got up from the altar, I started walking back to where my seat was. And that's when I met this guy. I found out later he had been a hitchhiker along Interstate 81, which goes right by the campground. And when he saw the lights on, he walked up the hill 
And he met me right there in the aisle, and he was kind of, it was, it was a little, kind of a weird fellow right from the very first start when I saw him. And he said to me the strangest thing. He said, he said can you help me? I, I keep hearing these evil voices in my head. And I don't remember my exact words, but I think I told him that's the devil. And, and the Bible said if you resist him, he'll just flee from you. And I turned around to pick up my Bible and my car keys, and that's when I heard this very high-pitched demonic voice. I spun around and looked at this guy, and I said, what was that? He said, that's what I keep telling you about. I keep hearing these evil voices. I says, no, that wasn't something that you heard. That was something that I heard. He said, well, these voices sometimes speak through me. I think I'm demon-possessed. I said, what? He said, yeah, I think I'm demon-possessed. And he was walking towards me with his hands out. Can you help me? I think I'm demon-possessed. I backed up and said, don't you touch me. You stay over there. And my next thought was, where is the state overseer? And where is the night evangelist? And where are all the pastors? I knew where they were. Shonies. Denny's. They were out eating somewhere. Where's a preacher when you need one? Well, I didn't know what to do. I was about 17 years old. I'd only preached a handful of times. I'd never met anybody that was demon-possessed. And so I was standing in the center of the aisle, and I pointed down to the front or the altar. I said, you go down there and wait for me. I'm going to go get some helpers. There weren't many of us that were left in the building. I went to the back where there were some tables where they were selling Bibles and you know, music and this kind of thing. And I said to a guy that was there, who I'd never met before, that guy down there is demon-possessed. And the guy that I was speaking to said, oh, he's probably not really, really demon-possessed. Maybe, you know, he's just a little mixed up or something. And I thought, you're not going to be much help to me. As I looked out into the parking lot, there were three or four ladies about ready to get into their car. I'd never met them, but I just ran over there where they were. I said, wait, ladies, wait a minute. I says, don't leave yet. I says, have you ever cast demons out of anybody before? They says, no. I says, well, you see that guy standing down there at the altar? He's demon-possessed. I heard the demons speaking through him, and I don't know what to do. One of those ladies grabbed her Bible. She said, we can do it. Come on, let's go. <laughs> so me and a handful of ladies went back to the altar to pray with this guy. Now, I'm going to walk up front and demonstrate a little bit of this to you because we did not know what we were doing. For starters, this guy was taller than all the rest of us, so one of the ladies said, make him get on his knees. I thought at least that way we'll have a height advantage, won't we? <laughs> so we told him to get down on his knees, and we're looking around for a leader. We needed somebody to give us a little bit of instruction, and somebody said, let's everybody lay our Bibles on him. So we all had a Bible. We had a Bible on his head, and we had a Bible on his back, and we had a Bible on his chest, and we, we had Bibles on his arms, and we had Bibles on his legs, and I'm like, well, what are we supposed to do next? Somebody said, well, let's pray a little louder. You know, if you turn the volume up a little bit. And so we all started praying a little louder. That didn't help either. We did not know what we were doing. We know how we Pentecostal folks are. We like to anoint things with oil, don't we? And somebody said, Go get some anointing oil. I thought, that's a great idea. Well, I was in the tabernacle. I didn't know if they had any anointing oil. I'd never been up on that stage before. I wasn't sure I was supposed to walk up on that stage. But I went up there, and I found a quart jar of anointing oil. 
I said, we got oil. <laughs> so I came back down to where this guy was, and I poured handfuls of oil into everyone's hands. <laughs> I was under the impression the more oil I put on this guy, the easier those demons are going to slide right out of it. That's what I was thinking. We, this guy was so greasy. But the demons that were not coming out, I kept thinking, we're not doing something right. We're not doing something right. Somebody said, I got an idea. Let's all hold hands in a circle. I thought, okay, we hadn't tried that yet. Let's try that. We all got in a circle and we all held hands. And we tried one thing and we tried another. We did this about 30 minutes or 45 minutes. And finally, I got frustrated. And I just let go of the hands I was holding. And I walked over here by myself about 15 steps away to clear my thinking for a moment. Now, back in those days... I used to carry a little New Testament in my back pocket. It was given to me by the Gideons when I was in the fifth grade in school. It had a red cover on it, and I kept it with me all the time. And I reached in that back pocket and pulled out that little New Testament, and I turned over to Mark chapter 16 because I wanted to read verse 16, 17, and 18, which says, In my name they shall cast out devils and speak with new tongues and take up service. These signs shall follow them. And here's what happened. I had my back to those folks over there. I was whispering, Lord, your word says that we're able to cast out these demons. I don't know what we're doing wrong, but and while I'm whispering this, what happens behind me is this demon-possessed guy gets up off of his knees. He breaks through that circle of prayer. He charges in behind me, yelling at me, intimidating me, and he shouted to me, What did you say? What did you say? And I was so afraid, I was shaking and trembling. I said, no, 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 I, I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. He says, no, you said something. And I'm thinking, there's no way you heard what I was saying. I was, I was whispering the word of God. And he was surrounded by loud praying people. How did he hear what I was saying? And I will never forget what he told me. He said, it sounded like a trumpet blaring. It dawned on me then, friends, that there is power in the Word of God. As I was reading, whispering the Word of God, Lord, your Word says in my name they shall cast out devils to the demons inside of him. The Word of God sounded like a trumpet blaring. And I looked at him and I said, here's what I said. And I read it out of the Scripture and he got a little weaker and I got a little stronger. And I read it again boldly. And he got a little weaker. And I got a little stronger. And I shouted to the crowd, I found something that works. Everything else we tried for 30 minutes wasn't working. But I learned if you rely upon the Word of God, if you rely upon the Spirit of God, if you rely upon the hand of God. And I said, here's what we forgot to do. Jesus said, in my name. I said, that's what we forgot to do. We gathered around that guy and we said, in the name of Jesus. Oh, boy, we begin to see some progress now. And eventually that old fella collapsed down to the floor like he had fainted. And somebody said, do we have any water? I said, I don't know if we have any water. I went up on the stage and found some water they had for the preacher. And we kind of patted him a little bit on the face and woke him up and gave him a little bit of water. His countenance was changed. His voice was changed. Everything about him has changed. He said, I'm free. I'm free. I said, now let me tell you something. I don't know where it is in the Bible, but there is a scripture somewhere in the Bible that says when the devil goes, he'll walk around in dry places. And if he can't find a place, he'll come back and bring seven more with him. I said to him, I said, do you want that to happen to you? 
He says, no. I said, then you need to get saved. He said, well, how do you get saved? I said, now I know what I'm doing. I can tell you how to get saved. Now I know what I'm doing. And we led this brother to Christ, and we walked down the hillside that evening with a new brother in Christ Jesus. Somebody clap your hand and give God some praise in the house of the Lord. I found out something, friend. In and of our own selves, we are not able to do what needs to be done. But when we rely upon the hand of God, we can begin to see victories in areas of our life. Everybody in agreement said amen. Amen. My speech and preaching, Paul said, was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration. That's what we need, the demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God. That's the part where Elisha puts his hands on the king's hands. Let's move to the second part of this story. I'll read to you verse 17. And he said, open the east window. And he opened it. And Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. Point number two, restore what has been lost. Look at somebody near you and say, restore what has been lost. While Elisha is laying there in the bed, now they just went through one military action where he just stretched open a bow. Now he says, let's go you know, to, the, to the next step here. He said, I want you to sh open the window that is east. Apparently there were a variety of windows that were available, but he found the one that looked toward the east. Some suggested it might have just been made of lattice or, or wood, whatever the case was. He opened that window. And this time he's not pretending to shoot an arrow. He actually shoots an arrow. It's a military action, but it's, it's, it's symbolism. This time he notches the arrow in the bow, standing inside the house, and shoots, and the arrow goes out the window. I don't know the distance, but goes out there a ways and just falls down to the ground as gravity would cause it to do. But what we understand is that this action is referred to as a declaration of war. As a matter of fact, when Alexander the Great declared war on Persia years ago, they say he rode his horse over to the property boundary and threw a dart over into Persia. As if to say, we just declared war on you. For those of you that watch a little college football, there's a team down in Florida called Florida State Seminoles, and they've got a mascot that looks like an Indian that rides on a horse and carries a spear. And sometime before the game starts, he'll ride out there to midfield. It's all a part of the, the show. He'll ride out there in midfield and thrust that spear down in the middle of the field. What he's saying to all the opponents, we just declared war on you. It's a declaration of war. Now, there's some specifics in this command. He said, open the window eastward and shoot an arrow. And as that arrow is in flight, Elisha gives him a little bit more detail and tells him, to recover the city of Aphek that had been taken by Syria. Now, Syria was the enemy. And the Syrians had infiltrated the property that belonged to the people of God and had confiscated a city by the name of Aphek. If you will measure from the border. Now, this, the tribe that owned this piece of property was the tribe of Manasseh. So, and Manasseh bordered Syria. 
And if you will measure from where the two properties came together over to the city of Aphek, it's about 40 miles. The enemy, known as the Syrians, went 40 miles deep into the territory of Manasseh and stole a city. The name of that city is called Aphek, which this is interesting. The Hebrew word Aphek means stronghold or fortress. So it's easy to understand here that the enemy had a stronghold 40 miles deep in the property that belonged to the people of God. And what Elisha was saying is you need to take back what the enemy has stolen from you. Now that, that city belonged to the tribe of Manasseh. God had given it to them as an inheritance and their enemy had taken it away from them. I believe it is time to declare war on the enemy and take back anything and everything that he has stolen from us. If it's our health, our relationships, our sanity, our peace of mind, the joy of the Lord, the anointing of God, I want to take back anything that the enemy has stolen from me. If you agree with that, shout amen. What I don't want us to do is just to sit back and twiddle our thumbs and cross our legs and let the devil take whatever he wants to take and say, well, this is just the last days. I guess that's just the way it's going to be in the end times. No, it's not. Sometimes you've got to get a little bit militant about this thing and draw a line in the sand and say, devil, that's all I'm going to take. And in the name of Jesus Christ, I'm pushing you out of my house and pushing you out of my life. How many know it works? I don't know if I should say all of this or not, but when I was elementary age in school, my biggest problem was fighting. Now, I don't even look like a fighter, and I haven't been in a fight in a long time. But I was expelled from school several times for fighting. I fought with my younger brother. I fought with my older brother. I fought with the neighborhood kids. I fought on the football field. I fought at the baseball diamond. I fought on the bus at the bus stop, I fought in the classroom, at the flag stop. I was, if, if you just unzip me and look on the inside, there's a scrapper on the inside of me. There, you know, there, there's, a, there's something when I was just a kid, I just got in a fight about every other day or so. And I was behind the backstop, and a guy named Glenn was wanting to fight me. Now, honestly, I didn't really want to fight Glenn because... Glenn had failed two grades. And he was about two, three years older than me. And he was taller than me and bigger than me and stronger than me and uglier than me. <laughs> and I didn't really want to fight him, but, but in no ways did I want him to know that. So I was going to bluff my way out of this one. I was in about the fifth grade. And we were standing behind the backstop. And with my foot, I drew a line into dirt. I says, Glenn, I'm giving you a chance. You better walk away. Because if you step over that line, I showed him my fist. I said, I'm going to hit you so hard, I don't know when you're going to wake up. <laughs> he was not afraid of me, and Glenn stepped right over that line. Well, goodness, I, I backed up and drew another line. <laughs> I drew another line in the sand, and I said, uh, I said Glenn, hold on now. I said, I'm going to warn you, I've been going to the library and I've been reading some books on karate and martial arts. I said, if you step across that line, I'm going to put this foot on that side of your head so fast, you won't even see it coming. 
He was not intimidated by me. He was not afraid of me. He stepped right over that line. I don't really want to tell you the rest of that story <laughs> because he jumped all over me. But the priest, here's what I want to tell you. When it comes to spiritual warfare, you don't have to keep backing up and drawing another line. You don't have to concede to the devil. You don't have, no, oh no, in the name of Jesus Christ, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but a mighty through God for the pulling down a stronghold. You push him out of your house. You push him out of your life. Greater is the God that's on the inside of you than all the forces that are opposed against you. This idea of taking back what the enemy has stolen from us is portrayed in Elisha saying, shoot that arrow, declare war, go take back what God intended for you to have from the beginning. Maybe I could illustrate that by telling you of a true story that happened when I was in a place called Abingdon, Virginia. When I had finished preaching that night, the Holy Spirit had specifically put five people on my heart that I needed to pray for. I didn't know them or anything about them. One was sitting over here, two was sitting right there, one was sitting over here, and one was sitting over there. I didn't know anything about them, and I wasn't sure they were going to come, but I asked. I said, sir, I need to pray for you. Ma'am, I need to pray for you. If you'll come, please. Gentlemen back here, but I said, I'd like to pray for you, and there was two more. And they all five came and stood right in front of me at the altar. The pastor at that time was named Dale Frazier. He was in Abingdon, Virginia. You know who I'm talking about. I prayed for this first person, and then when I got to this second person that I was going to pray for, this was a lady that was about 22 or 23 years old. She was expecting a child and looked like that she was due most any time. I did not see a wedding band on her finger. I never saw a man sitting with her. I wasn't sure of the circumstances of her pregnancy. I felt a compassion towards her. And when I prayed for her, the Holy Spirit came upon her and she just sort of sank down to her knees and lay right over on the floor. The third person I came to pray for in the line was a guy that had come into church late that night. I was almost finished preaching when the door swung open. He came in and sat down on the back row. I don't know how I knew this, but as soon as I saw him, I knew he needed to be saved. I don't know how I knew that, except for the Holy Spirit just revealed it to me. I knew he needed to be saved. And I wasn't sure he was going to come to the altar, but when I asked him to come, he came and stood right there. But I wanted to hear him say that he wanted to be saved. And I said, how can I pray with you? He was a big guy. He just dropped to his knees. I mean, the floor just was like a thud when he dropped to his knees. And he bellowed out, I need to be saved. And while he was on his knees, now looking at me in this direction, he pointed back over his left shoulder. He said, that's my mother and father that sit right over there. They have been in this church for years and years. They have been praying for me for years and years. I've been living the life of a backslider. I've been away from God, and I need to come back to God. Well, we prayed for him. And then I moved on, and I prayed for the fourth person, and I prayed for the fifth person. And about this time, the guy that had just gotten saved had not left the altar he said, I've been around Pentecost long enough to know. He said, I want to be spirit-filled too. I said, raise your hands. We started praying for him. And God filled him with the Holy Spirit. How many know it's true? Say amen. Still for today. Well now, 
About the time he received the Holy Spirit and was so overjoyed, this young lady that had been laying there in the floor all this time was just getting up out of the floor. Which would be a nice thing for a gentleman, you know, to help stand her up, help her get up. And before I could get there, this guy that had just come back to the Lord and been spirit-filled reached over and helped her. And what he did next shocked me. She stood all the way up on her feet. He wrapped his arms around her and kissed her right in the lips. Whoa, I thought we shouldn't be doing that right here at the altar. I know he's excited to be saved, but come on. Well, I'm not the pastor, but we needed some pastoral intervention. And I looked around at Dale Frazier and I tugged on his jacket and said, this guy that just got saved is kissing one of your ladies right here at the altar. And he looked over there like it didn't bother him, but it bothered me. But Pastor Frazier knew that that was husband and wife. And that she was pregnant with his baby. And that for about eight months he had left his wife and had been out running the streets and had been doing drugs and drinking and living a, a party life. And he also knew that this 22 or 23-year-old bride that was pregnant had been praying every single day trying to restore what had been lost. She, she had prayed this prayer hundreds if not thousands of times. God, before my baby is born, bring my husband home and save his soul. God, before this baby is born, bring my husband home and save his soul. That night he got saved and spirit filled and went home with his wife. She went into labor by midnight and the next morning they had a little baby girl. Let me tell you something. God heard the prayers of, of that mother. Well now then, it wasn't that long ago I was in Bristol, Virginia, which is side by side with Abingdon. And right after service, a lady command come up to me and said, you probably don't remember us, but about 15 years ago, my husband got saved and came to church. He came to church, got saved, and, I, and said, I, she said, I had a baby the next morning. I said, oh, I will never forget that. I hadn't seen them in 15 years. She said, here's my husband. We're still together. There's our daughter. She's now 15 years old. There's our other daughter. She's 13 years old. And there's our son. He's 11 years old. And God kept our whole family together. I just thought I would let you know something, friend. You can fight for your family. You can believe God to restore what the enemy has stolen from you. Somebody shout glory to God. No weapon formed against us is going to prosper. Upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So when Elisha puts his hands on the king's hands, he's saying you've got to rely on the hand of God. When he shoots an arrow out the window, he's saying you need to restore what's been lost. Let's go to the third and final point of this story, which might be the most interesting of all. At verse 19, the man of God was angry with him, with the king, and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. This is amazing to me. That however many times the king strikes the arrows on the ground is actually going to determine 
how many victories Israel has over Syria in the future. That is awesome. Now, I had thought when I first read through this text that when he said strike the arrows, most likely he had this satchel or some would refer to as a quiver which would hold the remaining arrows that maybe the king just grabbed a, a handful of arrows, however many he could hold, four, five, six in one hand, and just swatted at the ground with them. Maybe, you know, in this motion, swatting at the ground. I do not believe that that's what he did. Because all of the actions up to this point are military actions. The stretching of the bow is pretending a military action. The shooting of an arrow out the window is a military action. Grabbing a handful of arrows and swatting them like a fly swatter is not a military action. What is more likely that he did was took a single arrow out of the quiver. And now pretending as though he were in hand-to-hand combat and as though his enemy were already lying down on the ground. He's using this now as a, an arrow, sort of as a, a dagger or a spear in his hand, and he shoves it into the ground. And he reaches around and gets another arrow. And pretending to finish off an enemy lying on the ground, he shoves it into the ground a second time and reaches over and gets an arrow and shoves it into the ground besides... The word that is used, strike, here in the Hebrew indicates these things would have happened. And strikes the third time into pretending to kill enemies. And he stops. And Elisha says, why did you stop? In other words, do you have any arrows left? How many arrows do you have left? You got two more left? You got three more left? You should have used all of them. You get all of them that you got. You keep striking arrows until you run out of arrows. Don't stop short. Don't stop halfway. And here's what I believe is happening in the spiritual realm. This is powerful. God from heaven is observing the actions of the king. And when that king grabbed one arrow and shoved it into the ground, if, I, if, you'll, if you'll let me say it this way, God calls together an angelic army and sends them on an assignment into the future to prepare a victory for Israel over Syria. And then God turns to watch the actions of the king. And when the king shoves a second arrow into the ground, God in heaven calls together some angels and creates another army and sends them on assignment. And God watches the actions of the king. And when he shoves the arrow the third time, in heaven the third time, God assembles angels like an army and sends them on assignment into the future to secure a victory for Israel. And then God watches the actions of the king. Listen carefully. When the king stopped, God stopped. If the king would have went four, God would have went four. If the king would have went five and six, God would have went five and six. Here's the way Jesus says it in the New Testament. Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Here's another way you could say it. According to your faith. So be it unto you. If your faith only lets you go three, God's going to meet you at three. But if your faith will take you to five, if your faith will take you to six, God will meet you at five or six. Does that make sense to anybody in the house? The actions of the king are dictating what God is going to do in the heavens. That is marvelous to think about. 
He's striking those arrows in the ground. I'll tell you this kind of reminds me a little bit of a parable that Jesus speaks in the New Testament concerning prayer. It's called the friend at midnight. And in those days, it was customary if a traveler was coming by, they didn't have so many motels like we do in a restaurant, so the people took it upon themselves to open the doors to complete strangers and felt obligated to feed them a meal. It was late at night. And a stranger dropped by and comes to a guy's house, and he doesn't have any food. So he goes over to his friend who lives, I'm, I'm going to say, next door to him. And he knocks on the door, and the guy inside says, I'm already in bed. He says, well, a stranger is in my house. I've got to give him some food. Let me borrow some bread for you, from you to feed him. And the guy says, I'm already in bed. I'm not going to get up right now. I'll give you bread first thing in the morning. Don't worry about it. Yes. No, I don't want bread in the morning. I want some bread tonight. He's hungry, and I want to feed him tonight. It's late. I'm in the bed. I'm not going to get up right now. You're a friend of mine. Don't worry. I will give you bread first thing in the morning. Yes. No, I don't want bread in the morning. I want bread tonight. I'm not going to give you bread tonight. Come back tomorrow. Yes. No, I don't want bread tomorrow. I've got to have some bread tonight. Now, the guy gets up and gives him some bread, and it's not because they're friends. It's because the guy won't stop knocking at the door. And the word that is used there to describe that is the word importunity. It means a persistence that absolutely will not give up. And the guy gets up and opens the door and gives him some bread. And Jesus uses that as an illustration of how we should pray. Ask and it shall be given. Seek and it you shall find. Knock! Knock! And the verb means keep on knocking and it shall be opened unto you. I want to say strike and keep on striking and keep on striking. May I suggest to you that every promise in this blessed book is like an arrow. You keep claiming one promise and another promise and striking the arrow and declaring. Uh, if you'll take it to point number three, I should have mentioned already. Point number three is resiliently claim your victory. It is a persistence. It is a Will not give up, will not quit, gotta have it. God promised that I'm not going home without it. Somebody clap your hands and exalt the name of Jesus in the house of God tonight. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. Do any of you in the house remember from years ago our former general overseer whose name was Wade H. Horton? Some of you would know who I'm talking about. A powerful preacher and a powerful man of faith. I'll close with this, but let me share with you a testimony from out of his ministry. Decades ago, he was preaching in the Carolinas. It was one of the old tent meetings that they used to have with the sawdust on the ground. And he had called for a prayer line that night, and many people lined up, one behind the other, to come forward for prayer. And Dr. Wade Horton and some of the other ministers stood there, and as the people would come one by one, they would pray for them. He said somewhere near the back of that line was a mother that was carrying her daughter, but her daughter was about seven years old but had never been able to walk 
because she had been born with diseased feet. Some call it club feet, or I've heard some refer to it as elephantitis. But her feet were so deformed she couldn't wear socks, she couldn't wear shoes, she had never walked. But this mother carried her everywhere she went. At long last, they made their way all the way to the front where the preachers were standing. And Wade Horton said that this precious girl was holding in her arms a shoebox. And he inquired about this shoebox. And he said, that girl opened that shoebox and made this statement. Pulled out a, he said, pulled out a pair of girl's blue shoes and said, as soon as God heals me, I'm going to put these shoes on. That's some faith talking right there. Now, why it happened like this, I do not know, but I will tell you the testimony the way it was told from Wade Horton himself. He said they prayed for this girl, and one foot was healed. The other remained clubfoot. One foot was healed, and she took the appropriate shoe and put it on that foot. Then he said, she stretched out that other leg and said, now pray for this one. <laughs> they prayed a second time, and the second foot was healed, and she put the second shoe on the second foot and leaped out of her mother's arms, he said, and danced all across that place as the church erupted with praise. Now, while I've got utmost confidence in Wade Horton, I think God was watching the actions of that little girl who brought her shoebox with her to the altar and said, as soon as God heals me, I'm going to put these shoes on. I like the fact that after one foot was healed, she wasn't content. She didn't leave with half her healing. She didn't leave with half her miracle. She was like the friend at midnight. She was like Elisha suggesting, keep striking the arrows. This young girl said, now pray for this one. And she went home with her full healing and full deliverance. So, stand with me if you would please. In a few moments I'll be inviting you to the altar, but I want to stipulate something. When you come to the altar tonight, I want to require something of you. I want you to bring your shoebox with you when you come. <laughs> In other words, bring your expectation. Believing that God doesn't want you leaving with half of your victory. Bow your heads, please. Father, we thank you for your word. We hear what you are saying to us tonight. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us that your intention is that we live with a victory in every area of our life. Help each one of us tonight to take back what the enemy has stolen from us. Take back our health. Take back our family. Take back our financial freedom. Take back our anointing. Take back the gifts of the Spirit that belong to us. Take back our joy that we once had in the peace of God that belongs to us. 
Father, I would ask that this entire altar area would just be a special place tonight where we gain the rest of our victory and that no one leaves here the same as they were when they came. I pray that you would anoint us to pray, oh God, tonight with a persistent faith. The kind of faith that doesn't give up. The kind of faith that keeps on knocking. The kind of faith that keeps on believing. The kind of faith that pleases God. That we would see and experience significant victories tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'll tell you what I would like to do. If you'll cooperate with me, and I believe that you will, we can make this happen. As I was praying this afternoon, I felt an impression of the Holy Spirit concerning our altar service tonight. Here's what I envision. In a few moments, I'm going to invite you all to meet me here at the altar, but in a special way. If you have any family here tonight, when you come to the altar, I'm going to ask you to stand with your family. It may be a husband and wife. It may be a parent and a child. It may be cousins, aunts, nieces. You got the point. Now, here's what I know. Somebody's standing here that's saying, I don't have any family here. That is not a problem. You come right down here to the altar and you hook up with a friend. You hook up with somebody because we're going to pray for your family too. I don't have any family here. Maybe you come hook up with me. We'll pray for our families together. So what I envision is little pockets. A family here, a family here, a couple there, a family there, some friends here, a family there. That's what we're going to do. Now, once you get up here, there's two different things we're going to do together. But I'm going to wait on you to get here first. It'll take us just a minute to get set up. But everybody that's willing, leave your seat. Come down here with me and stand with your family. Come on, do that right now. Come on with me. Stand with your family here at the altar. And if you don't have family, come stand with us because we are your family. Thank you for your response. That's just exactly what I was hoping to see. God bless you. Thank you.